Good morning and welcome to our service today. There's liquid sunshine and a little wind with it today, but we're glad that you have braved being here with us this morning. We pray that the Lord will take care of us as we come together and worship Him and believe that He indeed will answer that prayer. I'm going to have to fess up this morning. A few months ago, I started from the home. I don't remember where I was going, but as I turned from the uh, street where we lived onto the little side road in, that goes in front of Sonic, I had noticed the light on the gas when I left home was on. It hadn't been on when I parked it, but when I left, I noticed it was on, and just as I made that turn, it quit. The car quit. Well, it had run out of gas. That's the first time in years and years and years that I have run out of gas. But I ran out of gas that day, and I thought about that as I was preparing this lesson. And then I thought about, well, what if you pulled up to a service station, and on the service station there was a sign, occasionally you'll see this when there are hurricanes and other things, that stations have run out of gas. But what if there is a sign that says, out of gas? And you go in, you ask the, the person who's working at the little uh, convenience store, you say, well, when are you going to have more? And that person answers you by saying, well, I know you've heard on the news that we have a shortage, that we're running out, that uh, the, the oil companies are not drilling anymore because they just can't find it anywhere, and we've used all of the reserves. And they actually told us with this last load of gas that we got, this is the last that we'll be getting. We're completely out of gas, and all of the other stations in town, they're just like us. They're running out as well, and so there will be no more gas. And you think about that, and you say, how would we survive without gas? And you think about it even more, and you say, well, how in the world would we survive? Because I know that it's not gasoline that's used, but it's natural gas that's used, and coal and other things like that that produces electricity. And what if we ran out of those things and did not have that anymore? What about our, national, our natural resources? If we were to run out of them, what would we do? And you begin to think about that and you begin to ask yourself all kinds of questions. You know, how would life be? And you think about it as well because there are people who, who have made the claim that we're getting low and we're running low and a lot of them perhaps have some kind of political agenda that they're pushing. Some may reasonably ask the question, well, what would happen or how is it that we are to use the natural resources that we have? I asked this morning, what, if anything, does the Bible have to say in regard to the natural resources that we have been given? Will we one day run out? Will God allow us to do that? Should we even be using these natural resources at all? You know, some would claim that by burning the fuels that we are able to get from the ground, that we're harming the environment, we're destroying the earth because we're using the things that are in the earth, and so, should we really be using them at all? Don't using all of these things just harm more than, they, than the good that they do? Again, does the Bible have anything to say in regard to these? I'll have to again fess up this morning. I've never preached on this topic. 
And I wanted to dig into it because that's one of the requests that was made last year as we planned for the lessons for this year. So somebody had a question in regard to it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see what we can about what the Word of God has to say about the natural resources that we have here in this world. As we begin this morning, let me just simply make the observation that God created the planet upon which we live, the earth, with a purpose in mind. God had a plan for what He did in creating man here on this earth. Now, as we think about the earth itself and the plan that God had for the earth, God created earth to be inhabited. He created it to have people on it, to have animals on it as well. In the book of Isaiah, chapter number 45, at verse number 18, I want you to listen to what the prophet Isaiah wrote. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He uh, formed it to be inhabited. Wow, within the text itself, God says, I formed the earth to be inhabited. And then he follows it up by saying, I am the Lord and there is no other. And so there is without a doubt the fact that God made the earth for us to live on. When we go back to the book of Genesis and the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and going through verse 22, I won't read all of that, but as you begin there in that passage, you'll find that God created the the sea animals and all of the life that was there and the birds and all of the things that was there. And God said to those things, He said that they were to multiply, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now we remember in the book of Genesis chapter 1 at verse 28 that God said to Adam and Eve that they were to multiply and replenish the earth. But before He even created man, He had given that same instruction, if you will, to the animals. He had put within them the fact that they were to procreate, that they were to fill the earth because God created the earth to be inhabited. God did not create the earth to be a desolate place. God did not create the earth for it to sit there because man languished on it and everything on it died. God created the earth to be inhabited. you know what? God made that statement on creation day, but you remember that most of the things, except for what was in the oceans or the waters itself, except for man and the animals that were on the ark, God made that statement again. When the ark, when all of the things were done in Genesis chapter 8 at verse 17, God said, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Not only did God say when He made them, when He created things, that that's the way it would be, but He also reiterated it after uh, after the flood and said all of the animals were to fill the earth again. And then not only do you see that, but if you go on down there in the book of Genesis chapter 9 at verse number 1, God said to Noah and his sons the same thing that he had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
God created the earth to be inhabited by the animals, but also by man. God's crowning achievement. And we need to remember that. Again, let me just simply say, He didn't create this great globe on which we live in order to have a big pretty thing floating around in space with nothing on it. God had a purpose in mind when He created the earth. But not only do we see that God created the earth to be inhabited, we also understand that God intends for humans to have dominion over the earth's resources. As you think about that with me this morning, remember what is said in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. In that passage, which has been read so many times, verse 26 God said, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let man have dominion over all of that. You drop on down to verse 28. The Bible says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But he also added one thing to it there. And subdue it. Subdue the earth. What do you mean by that? Well, the word subdue means to bring into submission by force. That's the way it's used in the Old Testament. To subdue something is to bring it into submission by force. Now I thought it was interesting in one passage of Scripture in the book of 2 Samuel that we find King David subduing some of the people who were around him, some of the nations who were around him. But in subduing them, he also did something else. Listen to the verse in 2 Samuel chapter 8 at verse number 11. The Bible says, These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. You see, the resources of the people that he subdued, the things that they had, when he subdued them, they became David's to use. They became David's so that he would be able to give them back to God if he so chose to do that. And so to subdue the earth doesn't mean that we just simply take it by force. You know, it would be hard to take some dust by force, wouldn't it? Not just the animals that you noted when we were reading that, but he said subdue the earth and the creeping things that are on the earth. We are to subdue the very land itself. It produces crops for us, but it also contains great minerals and all kinds of what we have now come to call fossil fuels. And by digging within that, by subduing it, if you will, by drilling down into that, we're able to use that which God has put there for us as His creation to use. God intends for humans to have dominion over the earth, not just the animals, but over the earth itself. In Psalm 8, at verse number 6, the Bible says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. 
and you have put all things under his feet. Now, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we know that that is quoted in relation to the Son of God when he came to the earth in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. But it also had a primary fulfillment in talking about man himself. And the things that God created here on this earth, he put it under our feet to use, to subdue. And so as we look at it again, that simply reaffirms what we've already been thinking about. God gave to man what he needs to survive, including plants and animals and other natural resources. And he said it's up to us to use those things, to subdue them and have dominion over the earth's resources. But then thirdly this morning, as we think about this lesson and using the natural resources that we have, the Bible makes it clear that through Jesus, God sustains life. God sustains life here on this earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. We exist, we live here on this earth through Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Now, now think about what Paul writes here. He says, God has creative powers through the Son that he makes it clear in Hebrews as well as John chapter number 1. Through the Son, God created things. But notice what he also says in verse 17. Not only does he create or did he create, but verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, the life that continues to be lived here on this earth, the things that God set into motion, it stays in motion by the power of God. Again, it affirms the fact that He is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, we understand what Jesus did in taking care of our sins and ascending back into heaven, but don't miss the middle part of that verse. By he, or he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Peter would write about that too in Second Peter chapter three, verses five through seven. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, what? These words. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now watch this in verse 7. And by the same word, 
By the same word, something happens. What is it? By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If we had no other verse in the Bible that said God takes care of life here, that He takes care of our planet, we have that one. And no matter what we do, we can't destroy it until God says it is time. Because He is the one, and by His Word, He is taking care of it. Keeping it, if you will. Preserving it, if you will. And so, till such time as He is ready for time to be no more. And so, the Bible makes it clear that through Jesus, God sustains life. Folks, we can be assured the environment will remain intact and suitable for life as long as God intends. He is the great sustainer. But then again, we also note this morning, man has a responsibility in all of this as well. Man has a responsibility to be a good steward of his environment. Jesus taught us that we shouldn't be wasteful. Well, how did he do that? Well, Mark chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, Jesus asked his apostles, I'm going to paraphrase it here, he says, don't you remember what happened when we had five loaves for 5,000 people? And what we did afterwards, what we do, well, we took up 12 baskets. And he asked them again, he says, and seven for 4,000. And what did we do? When we finished, we took up seven baskets. If you turn to the book of John, chapter 6, at verse number 12, in the passage in which John talks about these events, The Bible says, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. He's setting an example for us to not be wasteful. Not just in what we have in the food, but in anything that we have in life. So many times, I believe that we as Americans, because we've been blessed so much, may have become wasteful. We need to be very careful about that. Not only does Jesus show us not to be wasteful, God shows us not to abuse the land. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 23 at verses 10 and 11, God made it clear for six years they were to toil the land. They were to to till it and uh, uh, grow on it. And on year number seven, they were to let it lie fallow. They weren't to use it. And so every seven years, the land had its Sabbath rest. It had time to... To, for all of the things that had grown over to, to nourish it and for the uh, nutrients to get back into the soil. In the book of Leviticus chapter 26, beginning at verse 33, 
God made it clear. He said, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in the enemy's land, then the land shall lie rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. In other words, what we have in Leviticus 26, verses 33 through 35, is God warning the people, if you don't observe this command that I've given you for every seventh year to let the land lie fallow, then I will send you into another land. You will be taken captive. And you will be held there until the land itself gets caught up, if you will, on its Sabbath rest. Have you ever wondered why God, we may think, arbitrarily chose the number 70 for the children of Israel, Judah, to go into Babylonian captivity? Do you realize the Bible tells us why? Second Chronicles thirty six seventeen through twenty one. Therefore he brought you up against them, the, uh, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or old age. He gave them all into his hand. The king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was his homeland. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of the princes, all these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took them into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What was the word? Until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill Seventy years. You see, it seems that the children of Israel hadn't observed those. God says, we're going to take the time to let it catch up. Until seventy years. God showed us not to abuse the land. You know, the problem with some, though, is they have come to worship creation rather than the Creator. A lot of folks have embraced what's called pantheism, especially the radical environmentalist. You may be asking, well, what is pantheism? Well, pantheism is a doctrine that equates God with the forces of the laws of the universe. One of the best ways I know of explaining it is this. God is everything and everyone, And everyone and everything is God. Uh, You see, uh, a tree, that's God. And and a rock, well, that's God. And an animal, that's God. 
and the sky's God, and the sun's God, and you're God. Hinduism and Buddhism both have roots in pantheism. There's even cults that worship Mother Nature. You may or may not have heard of the Gia cult. The Gias worship the ancient Roman god, or Greek god rather, goddess Gia, the ancestral mother of all life. Mother Nature. You may have noticed this morning that when Cole read, God had forbidden that practice many, many years ago. The Bible forbids this practice as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, God gave them up, to the lust, uh, up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The word that's translated creature here in this passage is used in the New Testament 19 times. If I counted it correctly, 16 of the 19 times it's not translated creature, it's translated creation. Man himself, the creature, would be the part of the creation. And so he says the pagans of the Gentiles, they worship the creation rather than the creator. We know from all of the idolatrous practices, all of the things that they worshiped, Back in Egypt, they worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars. God told us, told the children of Israel, rather, in Deuteronomy 17, you don't do that. They had embraced this idea of worshiping things on the earth. Obviously, God has forbidden worshiping the creation because it becomes an idol. This place is Him. It takes Him out of the picture. But there's also a problem on a practical level as well. You see, you and I believe in an eternal being. We believe in God, don't we? He himself is an eternal being. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, we understand that it's through God that we have life. And it's through God that we survive. That was part of the point in the first part of our lesson. He is the great sustainer of all things. Radical environmentalists and others believe in an eternal universe. They don't believe in the eternal being. They believe in an eternal universe. That somewhere back in eternity there was this blob of dirt and you know that blob of dirt, it finally produced some slime and in that slime it got some kind of little bacteria in it and that, or some kind of little animal or some kind of little thing, you know, one cell organism and it crawled up out of the ground and, and eventually you turned into a monkey and that monkey turned into you. 
And what's more, the physical environment must be protected and preserved by humans in order for any life to continue. See a difference? God is the one who sustains life, but in their view, we're the ones who has to take care of that which brought us. If a man damages the fragile environment, he's contributing to the demise of the eternal universe. In his 1997 book, Carl Sagan, you may have heard that name, he passed away in 96 in this book called Billions and Billions, uh, Thoughts on Life and Death at the Brink of the Millennium. It was published after his death. But Sagan had written before his death, he says, there's no cause more urgent, no dedication more fitting than to protect the future of our species. No social convention, no political system, no economic hypothesis, no religious dogma is more important than protecting life here on this earth, protecting the universe itself. You see, the reason that no religious dogma, as he mentions it there, is more important is because worship of the environment is their religion. It has become their religion. And they become radical in that. Back in 1980, Sagan had already written, he said, the earth is a tiny and fragile world. It needs to be cherished. It needs to be loved. You know, to say that something needs to be cherished is to say that it needs to be loved, but what did Matthew 22:37 say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We have the object of our affection, and that is God. Sagan and those like him have lifted the earth to that status, that it is to be protected. Though God expects us not to be wasteful, not to abuse the land upon which we live, He never told us to elevate it to the status of loving it like we love Him or our fellow man. That accounts for why killing a baby eagle is worse than killing a baby. That accounts for why Mankind can't use his land because there's a worm there. Or some kind of fish in that particular area. Our society, many in it, have elevated and begun to love the universe rather than loving God and their fellow man. Belief in an eternal universe that must be protected by man leaves no room for God to sustain it. They have totally replaced God. As we begin to bring our lesson to conclusion this morning, the fact is God never intended for this universe to be eternal, did He? Never intended for it to be.
Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Watch verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Comparison is made there between the universe and God. God always lasts. The universe, the world, the planet upon which we live will grow old. Like your old blue jeans, they'll wear out. At the proper time, God will bring an end to this universe, this world, this earth that we live upon. Peter says that they'll be burned up on the day that we least expect it. You were with us last Sunday. We talked about when that'll be. We don't know. And so, this morning, instead of devoting all of our time and energy preserving the non-eternal, shouldn't we be spending more time saving the part of man that is eternal? So, Because that is the important part of man. This lesson this morning has not been one of an evangelistic nature. But as we do bring this lesson to a close, we are concerned with our souls, aren't we? If we weren't concerned with them, we wouldn't be here this morning, especially on a rainy day like this. But we are. It may be this morning that you know that there's something that is separating you and God that puts your soul in danger. 